0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed uh, for coming uh, this evening to our 2020 annual lecture for CCW, the Changing Character War Center. For those who don't know, CCW has been in existence since the very end of 2003, bringing together scholars with practitioners, both military and political. And obviously, as the title suggests, we've been studying what's changing in the character of armed conflicts. And if you think back to just sort of the 1990s, the late 1990s, the big concern was about peace enforcement and stabilisation. Then it shifted very dramatically um, shortly before CCW um, stood up as an organisation uh, with the dramatic events of 9-11, and our focus was on terrorism, of course, primarily. And then through those early 2000s, the big focus then was on insurgency and, again, state stabilisation, but against insurgency particularly in the Middle East. And now we find ourselves discussing much more often hostile state actors. So that change alone, just in a broad handful, shows you uh, just how busy uh, we've been. And our focus isn't just, though, on these dramatic geopolitical shifts. It's also about um, the human condition, how ethically we respond to this problem of armed conflict. And it's been about some of the new technologies that have arrived that have made things very disruptive, Just recently, we're all pretty concerned at the moment about artificial intelligence, for example, what difference that's going to make uh, to the future of armed conflict. And we shouldn't ignore the fact um, that even outer space is now part of our concern uh, around the world. But, uh, certainly since CCW was formed, uh, we've been very fortunate to have uh, an annual lecture where we have asked someone who's prominent in academic or in public life to come and share their reflections on war on strategy and perhaps on statecraft and gives me great pleasure this evening to introduce you to our annual lecturer of 2021. Peter Watkins is currently the Associate Fellow for Chatham House and has been there since June of 2019 but he's had a very distinguished career career. Um, he was from 2014 to 2018 the Director General in the United Kingdom Ministry of Defence responsible for strategic defence policy, including multilateral uh, and bilateral relationships, um, and obviously NATO was part of that. Uh, He was responsible for Britain's uh, nuclear uh, debate, if you like, Uh, cyber, of course, as it was emerging, space, uh, and indeed the prosperity agenda, as it was known. Uh, That post, I should point out to you now, is now known as Director General Strategy and International, I think we're going to add Space Agency to that as well as another uh, thing to think about. Previously, uh, he served as Director General of the Defence Academy, uh, down the road from here, uh, the Director of Operational Policy, the Director responsible for the United Kingdom's share of the Typhoon Combat Aircraft Programme, and as Defence Councillor to the UK Embassy in Berlin. And I was wondering, uh, on my way over here this evening, whether you were upholding that great British tradition of keeping the Russians out, the Americans in, and the Germans, somewhere else. Um, He's obviously a frequent participant in debates on defence and security, um, not just in Chatham House, of course, but elsewhere. Um, And he was awarded uh, the CB in 2019 and CBE uh, before that in 2004 for services to defence. He's got an MA from Cambridge. Uh, He was an undergraduate at Peterhouse. And I should also point out he's had experience in lecturing at the Uh, as a senior course member rather at the NATO Defence College which we're very fond of here and in 2006 was a fellow of the Weatherhead Centre in Harvard another connection that we have as well uh, in international affairs. Peter, thank you very much indeed for being our annual lecturer 2021. Over to you. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much for those uh, kind words. Um, I suppose if I were... Copy my American colleagues. I'd call you Director Johnson. But, um, <laughs> anyway, um, so anyway, I'll go. I'll go straight into it, and then um, we'll, no uh, doubt, have some discussion afterwards. Um, so anyway, Master Dr. Johnson, uh, distinguished and learned guests, and ladies and gentlemen, um, it's um, an honour to have been invited to give this year's Changing Character of War annual lecture. Um, my only qualification for this podium is sort of what Rob's been saying, um, which is that I was a senior official in the UK Ministry of Defence for quite a long time. Um, I joined in 1980, so, and I left in 2018, so this centre was founded just over halfway through my stint. Um, but during that period, I worked mainly on policy, strategy, Uh, acquisition and resource management and as Rob said from 2011 to 2014 I ran the Defence Academy at Shrivenham about 20 miles away from here and we had a good relationship uh, with this centre and with uh, Oxford University more widely and I now have other roles and affiliations you alluded to one of them which is um, as board member of as a steering board member of the Space Agency uh, and obviously Uh, Whatever I say, I say in a strictly personal capacity. Um, So I was asked this evening to reflect upon past defence reviews and how they might help us better understand the current direction of UK foreign and security policy. Um, Hence the title, UK Defence Policy Reviews and Redirections. Um, As I said, I was with the Ministry of Defence from 1980 to 2018. And during that period, there were an five sort of set-piece reviews, as generally understood. So in 1981, 1990, 97-98, 2010, and 2015. And I brought the first and, well, not quite the last. This is the, um, the 1981 review, and this one was the 2010 review. Um, the others, I'm afraid, I only have in soft-copy. Um, I'm sort of gradually becoming less attached to paper, uh, as we all are. Um, So the last two reviews, the 2010 one and the 2015 review, were obviously broader in scope. They were strategic defence and security reviews. But defence was at the core uh, of both of them. Um, And since then, of course, there's been the integrated review of 2020-21, which was given advance billing by the current Defence Secretary as, quote, the deepest and most radical, unquote, review of UK foreign security and defense policy since the end of the Cold War. So as an official, I had limited involvement with the 1981 review. I was a very junior official then, uh, often known uh, as Command 288. Quite unusual, that. It's pretty much the only document um, that is still known generally by its command paper number. Um, I had some involvement in the 1990 review, which was known as Options for Change, more with the um, 1997-98 Strategic Defence Review and the 2010 review, and um, I was the Director general responsible for the defence element of the 2015 review. And as an ex-official, I tracked the integrated review pretty closely and have written some short commentary pieces on it including some analysis that um, I undertook with um, two former colleagues, Tom McCain and Will Jessett, on which I will draw for part of this um, presentation this evening. I am conscious that this is pretty well trodden ground. Um, So in my remarks today I'll not consider reviews or their wider context earlier than the period in which I served with the Ministry of Defence. Now you might think that's a bit self-indulgent, um, but actually, listening to what Rob said, I don't feel it's quite so self indulgent. Um, because although my being in the Ministry of Defence for those 38, th- that particular 38 years was just an accident of my personal history, one could argue that it was a period that saw some pretty transformational change. So, geopolitically, shifting from one of the coldest periods of the spells of the Cold War. Uh, shortly after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, through the collapse of the Soviet bloc uh, and the apparent triumph of the West, um, then through a period of large-scale stabilisation operations, as Rob alluded to, and then to the re-emergence of state-on-state or great power competition in the Indo-Pacific and the Euro-Atlantic areas. And then technologically, with huge advances in military and commercial electronics the arrival of the internet, and so on. And then institutionally, with the British government at least, under prime ministers of both main parties, striving to be more business-like, with working practices transformed by mobile phones, email, and the 24-hour news cycle. When I started in the Ministry of Defense in 1980, um, there was no such thing as email or mobile phones. Uh, If you wrote a paper, you wrote it out in longhand, on a full, full step, you know, not even A4, and it was posted to an office in Glasgow to be typed up. Um, so you know, I suppose it was quite a long time, but it's a huge change in working practices. And the period began with events that were harbingers of the end of the old order, so the death of Tito and the Gdansk Agreement in 1980, and ended with developments that presaged the new set of challenges. Um, an increasingly competent China, an increasingly distracted United States, and accelerating climate change. So following those introductory points, um, I'll structure my remarks this evening into roughly four parts. I realise I'm breaking the rule here, I should always do things in three parts, but I'm not afraid. Um, So I've got nothing against them. I'll outline the reviews, uh, pulling out their continuing features and patterns. Then I'll sketch out the wider context of UK defence policy during those years. Then I'll offer some thoughts on the recent integrated review and ask whether and to what extent it breaks with the mould of the past. And finally, I'll offer some thoughts on future challenges. So first of all, the reviews. Um, I've listed the five that took place. They have all, to a greater or lesser extent, contained the following elements. A risk and threat assessment. Namely, what are the main risks and threats facing the UK and where do they come from? A policy baseline. What is the best general policy response to those risks and threats? And what specific national security and defense policies and planning priorities should be pursued? An analysis of capability and force structure requirements. What new capabilities are required to meet the threats and or changes in the balance of those capabilities? In you know practical terms, how many ships, tanks, aircraft, etc, and how many personnel, military and civilian are needed, a financial settlement, what resources are required to sustain the policy, capabilities and force structures, and, and we'll come back to this, what steps should be taken to ensure a sustainable balance between commitments and resources? And then the fifth element, an analysis of organisation and processes. What organisational arrangements will best support the policy and planning responses outlined? And what changes need to be made to existing arrangements? And reviews have taken place for the following, sometimes overlapping, reasons. Economic and financial. Two of the reviews, Command 8288 and the 2010 SDSR, the two I brought with me, um, were explicit that they were responding to uh, economic pressures. The existing defence effort was frankly no longer affordable. This was partly, but unstated, the case with options for change in 1990 as well. Strategic change, another reason. Two of the past reviews, options for change, as I mentioned, and to a lesser extent, the 1997-98 SDR, were responding more to changes in the strategic context as, of course, was the integrated review, namely to the UK's changed position in the world post-Brexit. Change of government, which was the main reason, frankly, for the uh, 97-98 SDR, and, rather prosaically, compliance with the schedule, um, which was the main reason for the 2015 review. Um, The coalition government had set out a commitment to conduct these reviews every five years, the new co- conservative government in 2015 respected this, even though David Cameron was uh, publicly uh, quite well, publicly unenthusiastic. Um, and of course, the 2015 review was also partly a response to the changed security environment in the Euro-Atlantic area, following Russian misbehaviour in Ukraine, which no doubt we'll come back to in questions, perhaps. And... Looking at the main elements of the past reviews, of these past reviews, and as I said, I'll cover the integrated review separately, one can pick out some patterns. So to avoid repetition, I'll take together the first two elements, the risk and threat assessment plus the policy baseline, because they tend to overlap a bit. So Command 8288 did not seek to overhaul UK defence policy. Like previous reviews, it saw the primary threat as being from the Soviet bloc. But given the financial pressures, it decided to take risk against the UK's maritime capabilities. This was undermined less than a year later by the Argentinian invasion of the Falkland Islands. Options for Change was cautious about whether the threat from the Soviet Union had actually gone, but judged that it was prudent to reduce defense spending from about 4% of GDP to 2.5% of GDP. I mean, it's now, by comparison, about 2.1% over the subsequent decade. And actually, it was prudent to do that, over the, the threat of major conflict in Europe receded during the 1990s and beyond. By the late 90s, risks to our national security appeared to come more from fragile and failing states. The 97-98 SDR's response to manage these risks at range seemed to work quite well at first in Sierra Leone, Macedonia, and initially in Afghanistan. But the SDR did not foresee that such interventions would turn into lengthy (coughs) stabilisation campaigns, as in southern Iraq and southern Afghanistan post-2006. SDSR, 2010, stated confidently, quote, no state currently has both the intent and the capability to threaten the independence or integrity of the United Kingdom," Unquote. That was said only 11 years ago. It saw the risks and threats as coming more, as before, from within fragile and failing states. And given the fiscal situation and the then government's limited ambitions in terms of a limited appetite, sorry, for further heavy uh, stabilisation operations, Um, It deliberately, SDSR 2010, deliberately limited defence's ambitions in terms of the scale of operations that the armed forces could undertake and it took risks against certain capabilities, such as maritime patrol aircraft. The resulting gaps were managed for several years thereafter albeit with increasing strain and unease. SDSR 15 closed these gaps and reorientated defense planning onto state-based threats, particularly from Russia. It also deepened investment in the new domains of conflict, namely cyber and space. So after a pretty shaky start with Command 8288, I think the reviews were about right on the uh, trajectory of risks and threats, and set the appropriate baseline policies in response. But the later ones seriously underestimated the pace of change in the strategic environment and how quickly the character of conflict would evolve, particularly with the innovative exploitation by adversaries of commercial technologies. So the third element um, of each of every review was uh, capabilities and force structures. Looked at individually, at least two of the reviews took some bold decisions to reduce capabilities. Command 8288 planned to cut one fifth of the Royal Navy's destroyers and frigates, two amphibious ships, and an aircraft carrier. The 2010 SDSR brought forward the withdrawal from service of the three small carriers that we used to have and the Harrier force and canceled the then maritime patrol aircraft program. The intervening 97-98 review, SDR, decided to replace the three small carriers with two bigger ones and created a number of joint formations such as Joint Force Harrier and the Joint Helicopter Command. But taking a slightly wider view, one gets a different picture. Although the size of the UK armed forces has reduced significantly since the early 1980s in terms of the number of platforms, war stocks, and personnel, their shape has changed very little, or relatively little. The changes instituted by the main reviews have been mainly incremental reflecting political and institutional pressures to maintain a broad spectrum of capabilities, including as a hedge against uncertainty. In the entire period, only two significant capabilities have been deleted permanently, conventional submarines and ground-based medium-range surface-to-air missiles, and both outside the main reviews. Given the pace of technological change, it's hard not to conclude that these changes to capabilities and force structures made in these reviews were too cautious and conservative. The fourth element of past reviews was the financial settlement. Arguably, Command 8288 did what it was set out to do in terms of reducing the program to match available resources. But following the Falklands campaign, many of the proposed cuts had to be reversed and the government announced in December 1982 that, quote, we shall now be devoting substantially more resources to, to defence than had previously been planned, um, unquote. The budgetary dimension of the decisions made in the 1990 review was not spelt out until the following year's statement on the defence estimates, which was the first of many indications that either defence expenditure was not reducing as expected and or that the defence budget was being squeezed by the Treasury. And as a result, the MOD then had to launch in 93-94 the so-called defence cost studies to find significant savings. By the time of the SDR in 97-98, the defence budget was at a low point in real terms with little hope of an uplift given the then government's ambitious social goals. The SDR, much lauded these days, but it um, concluded with a residual gap between the associated financial settlement and the estimated cost of the defence programme, to be closed by ambitious efficiency measures. And the result was that the MOD struggled financially throughout the next decade. The 2010 review cut the defence programme by 10%, but it soon became clear that this wasn't enough. Hence the so-called three-month exercise in 2011, uh, which included a previously rejected uh, reduction in the size of the army. The 2015 SDSR began with an announcement that the UK would meet the NATO target of spending 2% of GDP on defence, thus basically fixing the budget. But this envelope was soon strained by new additions to the defence programme, with the gap to be closed as before by ambitious efficiency targets. Some additional funding was was provided in 2018 and a big uplift in 2020. I don't have the detail, but it is widely understood, I'm choosing my words a bit carefully here, that a significant proportion of that funding has had to be allocated to fill, what is technically known as holes, in the existing programme. In short, none of the reviews after Command 8288 has managed to create a sustainable balance between commitments and resources, and they were all followed by further measures. The fifth element was organisation and processes. While all the reviews have had something to say on this dimension, it was actually only a big part of the 97-98 review, which created a number of joint organisations, which I won't go through to share to spare you from the Ministry of Defence alphabet soup. Um, otherwise, the studies and reports that led to the most significant organisational changes to the Ministry of Defence took place outside the main reviews. These included the so-called Hesseltine review, uh, of the Central Ministry of Defence in 1984. Michael hessentine of course, an alumnus of this college. The New Management Strategy and the Related Prospect Review in the early 90s. The Enabling Acquisition Change Study, uh, which led to the merger of the uh, MOD's main uh, acquisition organisations. And of course, the Levine <coughs> Review in 2011-12. So from an organisational perspective, the main reviews have rarely been decisive. So having sketched out what the reviews did or didn't do, I'll now um, turn or return to my second theme, the wider context of UK defence over those years. And it will be a personal perspective reflecting my standpoint at various moments. And former colleagues of my approximate vintage uh, may have different perceptions. In terms of the strategic context, there was obviously a decisive breakpoint in 89-90. But certain elements straddle the divide. One was the relationship with the United States. In the 1980s, this turned around the US contribution to NATO's deterrence posture in Europe, both nuclear and conventional. In the 90s and 2000s, it was more operational cooperation, uh, whether in the Gulf War or the subsequent interventions in Afghanistan and Iraq that was the centerpiece. And cooperation on nuclear and intelligence matters continued throughout, largely following their own rhythms. Another one was the Middle East, and particularly the Gulf. UK forces had officially withdrawn from east of Suez in the 1970s. But with the outbreak of the Iran-Iraq War in 1980, the Royal Navy's Armilla Patrol was established, which continued for many years, and eventually evolved into a renewed renewed permanent naval presence uh, in the Gulf. Relations with the Gulf Cooperation Council states were a continuing priority for ministers throughout, with regular visits uh, to the Gulf. What we would now call the prosperity dimension was a big factor. The defense industrial relationship with Saudi Arabia stepped up significantly uh, after 1985, and defense exports on a much lesser scale were also pursued uh, in the other states, including the most recent export sale of Typhoon to Qatar Uh, which was signed in 2017. And of course, the response to Iraq's invasion of Kuwait and its aftermath was a major preoccupation in the early and, again, the late 1990s to be followed by the searing experience of operations in Iraq from early 2003. Even as these receded, concern was growing about Iran's nuclear programme. And I can't think of any other part of the world outside Europe that had such an impact uh, on defence during those years. Turning to Europe for the MOD, seen mainly through the prism of NATO and key bilateral programmes, including key bilateral relationships, including cooperation on major equipment programmes. Successive reviews and documents have described NATO as, quote, vital, or as the, quote, cornerstone of the UK's defense. But the day-to-day relationship has been more nuanced. Given the UK's continued, continuing interest beyond the NATO area, NATO has not driven defense planning in the UK to the same degree as it has in other, NATO, other European states. The two key bilateral relations, relationships during the period were with Germany and France, with the former, the British military presence in Germany steadily reduced after the early 90s, and the centerpiece of the relationship became equipment cooperation, so tornado, typhoon, etc. With France, there was more of a shared strategic culture as fellow nuclear powers with global interests, but equipment cooperation was much less developed during that period. And tellingly, the St. Marlowe agreement uh, with France on European defense, was signed some months after the 97-98 SDR was published and was not prefigured in it at all, as far as I can make out. Um, Looking inwards, UK defence was subject to budgetary pressures throughout the period and remains so today, despite the uh, budget uplift of a year ago. This reflected relentless growth in costs. Above the generic rate of inflation, in equipment and, to a lesser extent, personnel. It's often assumed and and asserted that the defence budget has been in steady decline since the late 1980s. This is not entirely correct. Defence expenditure, which admittedly is technically not quite the same thing, was pretty steady in real terms across my almost 40-year period, at around £40 billion a year, apart from a significant dip in the mid to late 1990s. Um, the peace dividend was relatively short-lived. Successive reviews and umpteen internal exercises between reviews failed to achieve a sustainable balance between the cost of commitments and available resources. Some degree of tension between those things is desirable, as it can help drive efin- efficiency and innovation. But the enduring ex- extent of the am- imbalance was, in my observation (personal view), a preoccupation of the MOD leadership throughout with a huge amount of senior time and staff effort absorbed by what one might call managing the gap. Um, Time that perhaps, effort that perhaps might have been uh, more gainfully utilised utilised on other things. So while there is a natural tendency for academic and other commentators to focus on the cadence of the main set piece reviews, the reality was one of almost constant reviews. Perhaps because of the slightly artificial way in which the main, piece review, the main reviews were conducted, they didn't seem to settle that much, whether carried out over a long period, like the 97-98 one, which lasted over a year, or a short one, like the SDSR in 2010, which lasted less than six months. Many big decisions were taken between reviews. These decisions may not have set directions, but they significantly constrained choices. So to give an example from my personal history, the UK's number of Eurofighter typhoons, the number that we were buying, was set in 1996. uh, And the SDR of the following year consciously did not reopen that number, given the risk to ongoing negotiations for industrial work shares with Germany. And of course, key decisions on the nuclear programme were also taken outside the set-piece reviews in 1980, 2006, and 2016. Finally, starting in the early 1980s, and initially reflecting a broader government agenda, these years saw successive efforts to run defence more like a business, and to reform acquisition processes. On the first, the beginnings were quite modest, with aspirations in this document, um, 9288, 9288, for, quote, more accountable management of the dockyards, and, quote, to carry out further our partnership with the private sector, unquote, in wider support areas. By the early 1990s, we had competing for quality and market testing, and efforts to outsource activities continued following the change of government in 97, notably in the div- divestment of test and evaluation work to what is now a uh, company called Kinetic. One could characterize this, and I'm, I, I do want to write this up at some point, as the deliberate, I think, or possibly not, dismantling of the warfare state, um, as described by David Edgerton in his uh, seminal book. With acquisition, the key change was the shift from the mid-1980s to an approach of seeking best value for money through open competition between prime contractors. The Ministry of Defense ceased, officially at least, selecting contractors taking account of broader industrial or social factors. This was accompanied by a, quote, hands-off approach to the defence industry. The Ministry of Defence expected the prime contractors to manage their supply chains and gradually collected less and less information about its supply base. Um, although the MOD regularly boasted about how much money this was saving, there was a growing sense by the mid-1990s that the results were mixed, with the costs of major projects rising and timescale slipping. So we had the launch of smart procurement in 1997, followed by many further acquisition reform initiatives. Though these tended to focus on organisation and process rather than the underlying value for money through open competition policy. So what I hope you're concluding from all this is that there's been a high degree of continuity. One might say path dependency over the past four decades. Despite claims by successive reviews that they were in this case, fresh and radical, and others um, that, yes, they used that term you know, all those years ago, um, phrase all those years ago, and others that they were setting a new compass. Perhaps it would be unfair to say that the broad direction of British defense policy didn't change much in 40 years. I think, actually, it was more a case of going around in a big circle. Um, and there's definitely been a lag or latency Even as substantial numbers of troops were deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan in the uh, first decade of this century, the UK sought to meet its NATO commitments, exacerbating overstretch. The campaign in Afghanistan did not become defence's quote, main effort, uh, which is a doctrinal term, until 2009. As I noted earlier, the broad shape of the UK armed forces also didn't change much. This reflected various pressures, as I said, Um, including um, political desire not to foreclose options and um, limit visible um, dependencies on allies. Some long capability gaps and consequent dependencies were accepted, but generally only when forced by circumstances, as with the maritime patrol aircraft. My sense is that the obsession with efficiencies from the early 1980s and the constant reviews were mainly about avoiding hard choices. And I suppose I'm deliberately echoing Peter Ricketts in saying that. Um, It wasn't too difficult to pretend otherwise. It was pretty obvious to anybody that parts of UK defense were not very efficient. But the quantum of the savings to be made was often based on rather cursory analyses, and was therefore rarely realized in practice. Successive efficiency exercises or initiatives, to use the MOD's um, favoured descriptors, um, disappointed. And I think the use of those words actually is quite indicative in itself. One could argue, nonetheless, that this multi-year effort was successful. Unlike in some other countries, UK defence did avoid having to narrow its horizons or lose uh, key capabilities, but a price was paid in the disproportionate intellectual effort put into managing the gap. I suppose the big question, which I wasn't planning to go into in the main part uh, of this, is whether there is a link between this and what is starting to look like a litany of strategic failures since the mid-1990s. The interventions in the Balkans were at least a partial success. But I don't need to dwell on Iraq, Libya, and Afghanistan. The errors in each case were different, but it seems to me at least arguable that a Ministry of Defence less preoccupied with its perennial balancing act might have handled matters differently. Against this background and turning to my third theme, um, how can one assess the integrated review? Glibly, I could take refuge in the time-honoured civil service phrase, it's too early to say, but I'll venture a bit more than that. The outgoing chief of the defence staff has said that from a defence perspective, the integrated review reflected a properly strategic approach uh, with an evaluation of ends, ways and means. I wouldn't dispute this apart from to to note that they do not appear to have been addressed in the right order, publicly at least. The ways, in the form of the integrated operating concept and the means, the defence budget settlement uh, appeared before the ends. Um, as set out in the white paper of uh, mid-March of this year, I mean there were, as you know, three uh, documents that finally appeared: the the main white paper of the 16th of March, the Defence Command paper of the 22nd of March, and the Defence Industrial Defence and Indu- Defence and Security Industrial Strategy uh, of the 23rd of March. Between them, they covered the same elements as previous reviews, and so briefly and using the same constituent elements as before. Uh, my sort of off-the-cuff assessment. First of all, the assessment of risks and threats. This appears to me to be thoughtful and comprehensive, with a clear and, in my view, correct restatement of the centrality of the Euro-Atlantic area to the UK's security. But it already feels a little overtaken by events with respect to the security challenge from China. Taiwan is barely mentioned. and the disruptive impact of accelerating climate change. Second, the policy and planning response. The integrated review, given its name, puts much weight on integration across domains, within government, and even internationally. This looks right. It posits a tilt to the Indo-Pacific. Again, given the growing challenges from that area, this also looks right. But it doesn't address whether the UK can make a meaningful contribution to security in the Indo-Pacific, without detriment to its contribution in the Euro-Atlantic. However, in my view, one of the most significant shifts in policy is set out in the last, but by no means least, paper in the trilogy, the Defense and Security Industrial Strategy. For the first time, this recognizes the defense industry as a, quote, strategic asset, unquote, and promises to move away from the previous policy of competition by default. Third, capabilities and force structures, The IR promises increased investment in digital, cyber, and space, at the expense of the accelerated retirement of some older capabilities, which has caused a lot of emotion, as you will know. And it moves off the unattainable previous target of 82,000 personnel for the Army, again all good in my view. The budget settlement, fourth element, the budget increase announced last November was greater than any external observer had expected. It means that unlike nearly all the previous reviews, this one has not been hobbled from the outset. But there's still a question whether, once the existing budget holes have been filled, there will be enough headroom for investment in new technologies. And as the figure work that accompanied the Chancellor's recent uh, budget statement showed, while the capital budget uh, for the MOD is going up very impressively, the resource or uh, day-to-day budget Uh, is quite constrained. Um, So there is a risk, I think, that we could be back before too long to managing the gap. And then fifth, organization and process. The biggest steps, such as the FCO and DFID merger, were outside defense, and in this case preceded the completion of the review. But the new (coughs) space command should provide a useful focus for an increasingly important domain. So with its self-consciously radical approach and welcome welcome injection of significant capital, will the integrated review break the mould that I've outlined so far? I don't think it's clear that it will. Indeed, the tilts to the Indo-Pacific may increase the strain. The text indicates that the tilt is actually intended to be more economic and diplomatic than military. But the coincidence with the aircraft carrier deployment has focused attention on the military dimension and may have raised expectations in the region that will have to be managed. So finally some closing thoughts on where we now seem to be heading. In the weeks after the pandemic struck, and I'm sure many people here will remember these, uh, there was a welter of we- webinars about its strategic significance and the consensus that, w- that emerged that it wasn't a great turning point but it, ex- it, w- it was accelerating and deepening trends that were already apparent, not least the shift in economic and political power to the Indo-Pacific. That still feels right to me, so the context for UK defence policy is now both rather familiar and also different. I see the main challenges still as Russia, China, the US, Europe and climate change. Russia remains, as we've been reminded over recent days, a disruptive power in the Euro-Atlantic area. Up until the last few days, it's been attracting less attention than five or six years ago. But the fundamentals haven't changed. Russia continues to exploit fault lines and other developments in Eastern and Central Europe, and we cannot exclude the possibility that it could do so in a way that would be destabilizing and could lead to conflict. So we must continue to invest in credible deterrence in the Euro-Atlantic area. China. Is not yet a military threat to the international order in the Indo-Pacific, or more widely, in the same way as Russia in the Euro-Atlantic. But there is a deepening pat- pattern of coercive and/or disruptive behaviour in the Indo-Pacific region and increasingly beyond: intimidation, cyber attacks, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and of course, Taiwan. The intimidation of Taiwan. The US will continue to have more equities at stake in the Indo-Pacific than any European country. It appears to be moving towards a more explicit deterrence posture and it will towards China, and it will continue to provide most of the forces required. In my view, the UK should be considering how it can best contribute to this posture, taking into account the views of the US and key re- regional partners such as Japan and Australia. It may be And Lloyd Austin, in one of his speeches in uh, the American Defence Secretary, uh, in one of his speeches in Singapore back in the summer, hinted at this. The UK might might be better off helping alleviate the pressures on the US by carrying more of the burden in Europe and the Gulf, facilitating the redeployment of US forces to the Indo-Pacific. In the meantime, the core of the competition between China and the West is technological. China has made no secret of its intent to master game-changing technologies such as AI and quantum. The UK and other key European powers should work with the US and key regional partners to better protect our technological edge where it still exists, uphold international rules and standards, and ensure that we do not become dependent on China for future critical technologies in the way that happened with Huawei and 5G. It might seem a bit odd now to switch to the US and Europe Surely they are not strategic competitors in the same way as Russia and China. True, but in a more fragmented world, one has to pay more attention to what one's allies and partners are up to, as well as potential adversaries. There was much relief uh, a year ago when Joe Biden was elected president and and, and undertook to work constructively with allies. But we knew that the underlying trend apparent for a decade of increasing US focus on the Indo-Pacific would continue, and many of us were worried about the trajectory of US domestic politics, particularly the implosion of the traditional Republican Party, and the implications that could have for the US's future international role. The US's approach to Afghanistan this summer showed that even the current administration could take an, quote, America first type approach. And the increasing um, influence of, or the increasing evidence of the continuing influence of Donald Trump uh, perhaps uh, gives pause, to thought on the, <coughs> pause for thought on the domestic trajectory. So the UK should, in my view, be thinking hard about becoming less dependent on the US. And I believe that this could be done in a way that the current administration would not find threatening, would actually welcome. It would, of course, involve almost inevitably working more closely with European partners. Which brings me to Europe. The idea of quote, European strategic autonomy remains a contested one. And the European Union has a lot less money to spend on defense than was envisaged a few years ago. The UK should not, in my view, automatically assume that European strategic autonomy is a bad thing. It depends on what form it takes and how open the EU is or becomes to third party engagement. If Emmanuel Macron is re-elected next year, I would expect to see this concept gain much more impetus. And those EU countries that are currently a bit ambivalent about it, including some close industrial partners of the UK, may start falling more into line. That would create the risk of a growing gap between the UK and its continental European partners. The Integrated Review had warm words about cooperation with European partners, if not the EU itself, but very few new concrete proposals, if any, and I think that needs attention. And finally, climate change. In the past, climate change, the climate was relatively unchanging. Climatic conditions and the seasons always needed to be taken into account in military planning, but not the possibility of them changing in the way that we are now seeing. The role of climate change in exacerbating conflict in, say, the Sahel is well documented. But climate change could now have a strategic impact much closer to home. Parts of the Mediterranean basin will have a climate in 10 to 20 years' time that could create economic and social pressures that might be destabilizing for key NATO allies. I'm not sure this is receiving sufficient attention. And there is another dimension. The MAD published its sustainability strategy back in March, and it contains some very worthy goals, except that I do think the objective of net zero by 2050 is not ambitious enough. But it seems to rest on the premise that adaptation to climate change should not have any detriment in terms of the operational capability of weapon systems against military threats. I wonder. Climate change is becoming such a big issue that the Ministry of Defence may have to accept Because in future, sustainability considerations may have to take precedence over operational performance in major decisions on procurement and infrastructure. So to conclude, despite, or the cynic might say, uh, because of multiple reviews, British defence policy has shown much continuity over the past four decades. But we are now entering uncharted waters geopolitically with the ascendancy of China and and the growing introspection of the US and even geographically and environmentally. I would wager that the reviews of the future are likely to look very different from those of the past. So thank you very much.